Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the New Statesman podcast with editor Jason Cowley, politics editor George Eaton and philosopher and New Statesman contributor John Gray. Hello, I'm Jason Cowley, editor of the New Statesman. I'm delighted to say that with me is one of our favourite writers, John Gray, the philosopher, author and New Statesman's lead book reviewer. And I also have our political editor, George Eaton, with me. John, a few weeks ago, you wrote um, an essay in The Statesman about Ed Miliband, his worldview, his policies, which, um, in the jargon of the internet, travelled. A lot of people read it. um, Had great um, uptake online. And your central thesis, if I I can call it that, was that in in some way, some fundamental way, Miliband... Mm -hmm misunderstands the present. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you meant by that? Yes, Jason. I mean, I think Miliband has positioned himself uh, according to the view, which is his genuine reading of um, the present condition of British politics, uh, on the basis of the belief that we're now in a situation akin to that in the mid-1970s yes. uh, or the late 1970s, when um, an old political consensus was disintegrating and a new one was uh, emerging. In other words, a time in which voters were ready for a radical shift in orientation. Now, I think that view um, is historically... um, uh, That analogy between the mid to late 70s and our present situation doesn't really hold water. Because there are many fundamental differences between then and now, but one is a much greater degree of globalization has altered the situation in Britain. But also, I think the British population as a whole um, doesn't regard the existing type of capitalism as one whose future is in fundamental doubt, which in the mid 70s and the late 70s, remember when we had inflation for a while at 27% annually and three-day week, tremendous industrial conflict and so on, uh, there was a, a profound, there was a period of profound doubt and anxiety. At the moment, um, British voters, as they look around the world, 
will see many conflicts. They'll see the Eurozone struggling. They'll see wars and upheavals in many parts of the world. But they don't have the deep-seated belief that this type of capitalism is so flawed that it would could mutate into something else. And they certainly don't believe, it seems to me, as Ed Miliband seems to do, that Britain is in a position in the world to craft or fashion a new type of capitalism, mm. a new type of non-predatory capitalism mm. he sometimes talks about. Because he's about. made the distinction between predator and responsible capitalism. Yes. Well, I'm not sure that can be made even. But John, what Miliband would say, and what where he draws comparison with mm. the Thatcher period, I mean, he says his ambition is Thatcher-esque. Mm. Um, he has said that, hasn't he? He has said that. Where you have the unravelling of the post-war Keynesian yeah. consensus yes. at, the, at the beginning of the mid-70s and then from, yeah. onwards. He would say we're seeing the financial crisis signal the end of the kind of neoliberal, 30-year mm. neoliberal experiment. Mm. Mm. You, you, you think he's, he's deluded to say that? I mean, you yourself, of all people, you, you forecast the, uh, the yes, but it hasn't. Uh, the paradox of the financial crisis, which I did forecast, is, is that it hasn't actually shaken the neoliberal consensus as much as one thing mm. it would have done. But there's another aspect to Ed's um, uh, misjudgment here, which is that although he says this, he hasn't actually come up with any alternative view of capitalism in any any detail or any structural or or, or disciplined way. What he's come up with is a variety of policies on the margins yes which actually um so it's incre incrementalism yeah it's a type of incrementalism it's not really i mean in the 80s what happened was uh, uh that ideas which had been bubbling up in the 70s filtered through into um ideas from hayek and a number of other people friedman and others which had been around for a while but bubbled up through the conservative party got then embodied in margaret thatcher who to begin with was pretty much of a blank slate mm -hmm. actually they were implemented, and there was a fundamental disjunction. It was a fundamentally not new intellectually, but politically it did represent a new era. But there's no sign of that. And I think one of the reasons... That so you're talking about... Um, in, in, in Ed's talk, one of the reasons the voters are... Many voters are rather leery of it, is that they hear this big talk about it. Yes. And, but actually there's not any substance to it. As whether or not you think it was a disaster or whether you think it was necessary, Thatcherism did represent a real shift. Mm. It, was uh, a, it was a profound change. A profound and real change. And, and yeah. an enduring one. An enduring one. An unleashing of the markets, yes. controlling inflation, abolition yes. of credit controls, and so on and so yes. forth. Accompanied alongside that was a very robust foreign policy. Yes. Anti-Soviet, yes. Atlanticist, yes. and Eurosceptic, ultimately. So one also, so you had a domestic policy and a foreign yes. policy. And an interesting gap in all of Ed Miliband's thinking is that it's extremely insular. Mm. We hear very little about foreign policy. He intervened, it's true, in the case of the Syria, possible Syria um, uh, action by the British state, but it's not clear that that was part of any larger vision. Yeah, it's more unintended it consequences. It's an unintended consequence of other things he wanted wanted to do. Um, there's no. It was interesting in the exchanges he had with uh, that Ed Miliband had with uh, um, Paxman the other evening. Mm. Uh, that uh, at no point was foreign policy ever even mentioned. Um, now, uh, if you think of the, the scale of his intellectual ambition, or the way, or, or if you think of how dauntingly um, uh, formidable is his self-image as someone, a leader who could alter the course of capitalism, mm. that's a big gap because what it leaves out is how how uh, relatively small. Uh, the leverage of a country, a mid-level country like Britain is now, certainly because of the inc increased 
of the, because of the vast increase in globalization since the 19, mid 1970s, we've got much less leeway than we had then. Mm, sure. So from from what you're saying is then is is he just fundamentally misguided, or is it that he's not ambitious enough? I think he's misguided as to what the electorate really wants. I don't find what what the electorate seemed to me to want is not some move away from the type of capitalism we now have, although many of them will perhaps feel that uh, it's generated inequalities on too large a scale. Mm. They may, that in that sense, it's unfair. But what it seems that many do want is, first of all, for that capitalism to deliver the goods more mm. successfully, but also perhaps that the um, rampant marketization of public services, including the health service, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, um, really has been a, a misstep. And in this respect, perhaps, he is insufficiently ambitious because there's no evidence really other I mean that um, I mean who really believes that if Miliband comes to power which is still feasible after the general election a minority government of some kind uh, propped up by the SNP what evidence is there that uh, what reason do we have for thinking that um, uh, the the marketization of the National Health Service would actually be reversed mm -hmm. rather than maybe slowed down or, yeah. or, or, or arrested in some way and yet I tend to think that at the back of many people's minds um, whoever they vote for at the moment is an idea in which you have some version of our present capitalist system but um, buffered by genuine market non-institutions. Mm. There's nothing of that. Mm. Although he says he's moved on from new labour, he accepts the whole inheritance of marketization that Blair brought about. There's, not this, there's no evidence. That he, he, to my knowledge, he's never made a commitment against it in terms of rolling back any of that. So it's kind of paradoxical. On the one hand, I think he's uh, his political vision is sort of vague and indeterminate and indefinite and also kind of un unrealizable and unrealistic given Britain's position in the world about having a different kind of capitalism mm -hmm. in this country. But another respect where perhaps something could be done, it's not ambitious enough. Mm -hmm. And is it also a warning to the left that when, we, when we're in an era of globalisation and, and capital is so mobile and the rich are so mm. adept at avoiding taxation mm. altogether, mm. that it's very difficult to, mm. to create social democracy mm. in one country. I mean, is there, is there optimism? Should, should one be optimistic for the prospects of the left, a leftist transformation? I don't, well, I mean, in a sense, the question you're asking um, could be applied to a thinker that Miliband and his circle took up mm. uh, Piketty. Yeah. Now, if you read Piketty's book, he says this can only be dealt with. His book, Capital. His book, uh, Capital in the 21st yeah. Century. Piketty says this, these issues can only be dealt with at the global level. Yes. Now, one of the sort of interesting things is who's going to deal with them at the, global, deal with the, uh, at the global Transnational level? institutions, which ones? And which transnational institutions are going to tell the Chinese what to do? Absolutely. Look here, you've got far too high on inequalities in Beijing at the moment. This is what you. So it's nonsense. When you have a world with big powers, some of them uh, don't give a toss what. The Western powers think uh, there's no possibility of um, a global redistributional uh, project, and even at the level of Europe, is it feasible, given the problems of the Europe of the eurozone, that any European institution could actually they can't achieve fiscal harmonisation? They haven't even achieved that yet. So I think that sets a limit on what the left can do. It doesn't mean it can do nothing because they can still consider, so to speak, rebuilding non-market institutions mm. outside. They can still think of doing that in various fields, and yet oddly, very few of them think of that. They accept this enormous marketization of education, of uh, uh, of healthcare, for example. Um, uh, they may express, say, it's gone slightly too far, but there's never any consideration of the possibility of rebuilding 
important non-market institutions, and that could be done. George, you you obviously follow um, Westminster day to day very carefully. What's going on there? Who's saying what to whom? Is there a sense inside the Miliband camp that they've misunderstood the present? Because Ed is resilient, and also, as we saw last night in the in the well, it's not exactly a debate in his exchanges with Paxman and, and with the audience, he has extraordinary self confidence. Mm. Um, he, he may be deluded, but he nevertheless has that confidence. What, what's your sense? Do they feel something new, something transformative is possible? I don't know if they'd necessarily use the word transformative, but they do feel they have a radical program. And one difficulty I think they they feel is that the bar is continue continually being raised. So under New Labour, something like a mansion tax would have been unthinkable. Uh, the top rate of tax was fixed at, at 40p. It was only raised to 50p uh, after the crisis. You know, Ed Miliband is the darling. Yeah, and Ed, Ed Miliband is now saying we'd take it back up to 50p. We'd introduce a mansion tax on properties worth more than 2 million. But will, will um, this yield much return? Um... No, but it's it, it. They see it as a commit as a sign of his commitment to redistribution and to approaching inequality in a way that would have been unthinkable under New Labour. But that's now seen as as fairly moderate because the debate has shifted in that sense that we can have. I mean, the, almost the fact that you can have a discussion and a debate around Ed Miliband and capitalism shows how the debate has moved on from from the New Labour period. I think the difficulty has been this misalignment between some of his rhetoric and some of his policies. Yes. That I think had he spoken as a moderate social democrat from the start, had he been quite clear that this was just about making capitalism better, rather than using terms like Thatcher-esque, then I think rather some of the... a different kind of capitalism. Yes, then I think some of those contradictions that, that yeah. you and John were alluding to yeah. wouldn't, have been so, wouldn't have been so present. And interestingly, in a recent interview, he said... Look, I think I have got a radical program. I think if you save the NHS, I think if you deal with zero hours contracts, if you raise the minimum wage, if you introduce the magic tax, if you build 200,000 homes a year, then I think you're in business. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's not nothing. Uh, that's, no. So I think, so. but that's, it's interesting that he's now speaking in those terms. Yeah, and not talking about a new Rather capitalism. than talking about a, yeah. a new capitalism. Yeah. That was, that was an error, wasn't it? Yes. So, John, is that, in a sense, he, he's being more pragmatic yeah. or is it a sense of retreat on his part? It's probably both because he's still, I mean, on the one hand, he's, he's toning down this um, wild and uh, kind of unreal rhetoric about yeah. a new type of capitalism and putting forward a, a variety of proposals which would amount to something if you could, if you could achieve them. But on the other hand, it could reasonably be argued by that and there would be, uh, I'm not a blue Labour person, um, I think that in many ways that's a kind of reactionary utopia. But it could be it could be argued that you know there are areas in which um, the market has been artificially projected through state institutions uh, in ways that haven't worked terribly well. I mean, is it really the case that the existing NHS, which is already extensive, is it really more efficient? Is it really more sensitive to me? Is it really does it really work better, or is it more unintelligible? Is it more managerially deformed than it was before? I mean, was it the case? I'm not saying we can go back to the old 
pre-market NHS. But would something like the, the mid-staff's deaths, did they ever occur then? Okay. I, won't, I mean, the, the large number of deaths in the... Did that actually happen in those times? We have no evidence that it ever did. So, you know, what is it about this new type of, whereby it's actually dysfunctional? So there is room in public services for a more radical criticism. Mm -hmm. So he's got this kind of paradox which runs right the way through his, through him. He's tactically very ruthless. Uh, strategically, he's been highly conservative and uh, rhetorically um, mellifluously utopian. <laughs> and so he, but he, now if he, if he could have been more consistent all along, and that might have removed yes. some of the difficulty. But maybe it's not in his nature to be like that because he's he has a tendency to um, uh, emphasize the, the pragmatic aspects when he's under criticism. Mm. But he does seem to have a Thatcher-esque self-image. Yeah, he does. And also, John, I, I thought John captured two things, was there? I mean, he, um, Ed Miliband is ruthless. There's no doubt about it. And he's mm. extremely ambitious mm. yeah. um, and has unbelievable self-belief. I mean, he... My encounters with him is incredibly robust, for one thing. Incredibly robust. And, and, yeah. and he has this, I think, and from many conversations with him, uh, and I've grown increasingly sceptical about him, as you know, is this sense of manifest destiny. Yes. And he, he is yeah. destined to be prime minister and to lead the country in a new direction. Mm. That's what he believes. Mm. But it's interesting, yeah, that one point that came out from the debates is people say, oh, he is quite tough, he's quite resilient. He's very he's tough. A theme. But we shouldn't be surprised that a son of Ralph Miliband, someone who worked for Gordon Brown, mm. someone who defeated Absolutely. his brother in a leadership contest, has those uh, character, characterized characteristics. It's, it's, not, it's not surprising. Yes, he may not be nimble in the house as we saw on Wednesday when he was smashed at PMQs by, by Cameron, um, but it doesn't mean he's not tough mm. because he's not nimble, not fluent in the way that And it Cameron doesn't is. mean that the that it doesn't mean that there won't be circumstances in which he gets for a while part of what he wanted, namely being Prime Minister. Being Prime Minister, even if he, he doesn't last for long. Even if, even if he doesn't last for long, as I speculated in my, in my piece for yes. you, uh, uh, Jason, in the New Statesman, and even if he's heavily in debt, as he would be, to the SNP. To the SNP. Mm. So actually, whatever vision he had, or even whatever particular proposals he had, would be to some extent forfeit to their demands, because even the more pragmatic ones would have to be paid for but if he has to make large concessions to Scottish needs first as a precondition of staying in power, then these other pragmatic proposals will also be compromised, won't they? Or at least endangered. To, just to, to wrap up, and it's mm. great to have you with us, John, today. Um, you. You've been great to be here. very prescient on the financial crisis and, and, and much else. We could be entering a period of great turbulence mm. if we're not already there. I mean, if there's a Cameron minority government, we have an in-out referendum on the EU, the British Union is as fragile as it's mm. ever been and no doubt soon there'll be a second referendum. Mm. Um, what do you sense lies ahead? I mean, even perhaps, the, I know you're, you're a sceptic mm. at heart, can you see mm. not only the British Union but the European Union both, both coming apart? Not in the next few uh, years. Not in uh, the short term? Uh, Jason, because my sort of intuition is that is that if Cameron gets into a position in which he can have a, an in-out referendum soon, six, 2016 or 17. Or 17 yeah. He's even yeah. said, talked about it since 2016 yeah. on occasion. My intuition is that the, uh, and I said this in the piece I wrote for you, Jason, is that the underlying mood of the British people is that the situation is not bad enough in Britain to um, uh, warrant what they would see as a leave in the dark. Mm. So the confidence of Farage that there is this vast groundswell of frustrated mm. 
uh, you're a skeptic is is illusory mm. is illusory um, uh, uh, we've comparatively speaking flourished on the margins being half in and half out has worked has worked right what George Soros said today yes yes what George Soros so it's worked very well why not continue for a while the basic policy would be wait and see I mean if the EU cracks up disintegrates because of Greece or some other reason or another possibility which would be truly revolutionary I don't predict it but I think it's realistically now thinkable um, a Marine Le Pen presidency mm. if that were to happen mm. so that would Throw the whole thing up like unlikely that. because of the French voting system. It's unlikely, She'd have to yeah. win the runoff. Yeah, but she could she could have a much bigger mm. impact on probably yeah. will on French national politics. So the future for the eurozone is not is not bright. But it doesn't mean it's going to break down now. And nor am I really convinced that the union is going to break down because, of course, unlike when the um, Scottish referendum was held, I mean, we've got two crucial differences. One is the collapse in the oil price, which would have rendered if they'd won Scotland a fiscally uh, unviable state, actually, uh, which would have had to be bailed out probably by um, the remainder of Britain, the remainder of the United Kingdom. But secondly, uh, the on the currency question, which was a key question in that in that uh, referendum, has not been resolved, but got more difficult. Uh, are the, would the new Scotland really become a, a member of the EU? The European authorities themselves said that they they wouldn't accept that in the sh- in the, in, until Scotland had demonstrated its credentials with the proper central bank and all the rest of it. So we might get in. We've been in a very paradoxical situation. First of all, in what you called in your uh, article and uh, interview, Jason, with um, uh, um, Salman, uh, an astonishing turnaround. We now have a situation in which the most powerful swing force in British politics will be. On most scenarios, almost all I would say that are credible after the election will be the SNP, which lost the lost the referendum. We could look ahead to something even more astonishing, I think, which is that if there were a referendum, maybe the SNP will decide not to have one for this very reason, not to push for an earlier one. But for a relatively early second referendum, we could have a situation in which the SNP would have completely unchallenged domination of the Scottish political landscape mm. and still not be able to deliver Probably a yes vote because. If the oil if the oil price hasn't gone back up, or if it has gone up but is wildly volatile, going up and down because of events in Yemen and elsewhere, which is quite possible, and if the situation in Europe is far from in, improving, um, uh, has as George Soros has speculated, right, has gotten gradually worse and worse without getting to the point of a complete breakdown, will the Scottish voters then? Would the Scottish voters then? vote to leave under those circumstances? I very much doubt it. So in fact, uh, there might be a kind of an element in bluff, at least in Salmon, in this idea we want a, a, a quick um, second referendum. Mm-hmm. He might retreat from it if it if it looks as if they're not going to get a, a, a clear 60%. So we have a, the ultimate paradox of the Scottish nationalists being predominant not only in England but in Scotland, but not able to imp- to, to to get any closer to their to their ultimate project except by getting ever more radical or uh, comprehensive forms of um, Devo Max. And as this, we're, what, four or five weeks out now from a general election, um, tell me if you don't want to say this, but can I draw you both out on on the likely outcome of, of the vote in, in May, George, you first mm-hmm. and John? Yeah, I think I think Labour will be the largest party with the SNP holding the balance of power in a hung parliament. I mean, the Tories haven't had the movement in the polls that they were hoping for. 
they keep having to uh, postpone the date that the so-called crossover takes place, rather like uh, those tribes who forecast the end of the world and have to constantly revise their predictions. Mm. Um, so I think I think that will be the outcome. I mean, the the real so, so that means the Miliband will be prime minister. It does, um, and the real hurdle for for Cameron is that um, the Tories and their allies, the DUP and the Lib Dems, now need to um, ensure that they have uh, a majority between them. Uh, if Labour and the SNP have a majority between them, then as Alex Salmond indicated in his interview uh, with you recently, it's it's impossible for Cameron to survive as Prime Minister. I think that has potentially yeah. changed the game. Yeah. And, and that's, John, what that, do you, what, is that your sense too? Um, I think I would come very close to that. I mean, one of the reasons why that's plausible uh, um, is um, UKIP's not going to break through. No. They might have a couple of seats, maybe three if they're tremendously lucky, but the the real players on the Conservative side would be the DUP and maybe the Liberals if there's anything much yeah. left of them. And if, I mean, the other day, David Steele said, you know, do we want, if there are half of us mm. are removed, do we want to do it again and reduce ourselves by another half? Uh, you know, Are they really willing to do that? Will, will there not be a revolt against Clegg's mm. leadership and so on? So um, I think that's, it's still feasible, it's still conceivable to me that... Um, I mean, the electoral arithmetic is so unfathomably complicated. We've never had a, a four or five uh, party competition against the background of a, of a coalition government. So we don't know. It's possible that Cameron could, uh, with the constitutional uncertainties of he's still in office and recommended by senior civil servants that he should try and form a government. It's, it's possible that he could try. But how long would he really hang on? He looks like a goner now, doesn't he? Even though, I mean, oh, sorry, not, not even though, I mean, he was talking in this vainglorious way of, uh, well, I'll only serve another five I years. <laughs> I mean, he's almost, you know, mm. that's all, that will go down as one of the great uh, one-line mistakes in, <laughs> in British politics because the objective situation is that um, uh, he's resented profoundly in the party for not winning, even you know, they would say, even against Gordon Brown. If in this situation against a leader, Ed Miliband, who's been regarded by them as even more unpopular and even less qualified to be uh, uh, Prime Minister, then I think Cameron's had it. So then you'll have kind of conflict along, but much earlier than he anticipated in his in his, medita- in his comments on this. You'll have a, a kind of an almost immediate conflict, I would mm. think. Don't you think? Yes, because he will invariably disappoint them again, because in yeah. the absence of a Tory majority you're not going to be able to give the Tory right the real red meat they seek. Yes. And they, they like the idea of a minority government, but unless you can win the majority of the House to your side, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to yeah. you know, seriously... You can't do what, is that, what, 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 the, what the, the sizable element of neo-Thatcherites in the party want him to do. Yeah. And he's not going to be able to do that. So um, uh, I think he, he'll, he's, he's going, he'll turn out to be an ephemeral figure. Okay, um... I'll take the fifth for now. I won't give you my view on what I think will happen, <laughs> but I might I might be tempted at uh, some time. Brilliant to have you here, John Gray. Always I've a really pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much, um, Jason. George Eaton, thank you very thank much. You, and thanks thank for listening. You, You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Anusha Kellyan, and produced by Anna Leskovich. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music was Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.